Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. It is possible that by next year, a Salish Sea orca will be out of jail while a former U.S. president is in jail. It's possible. We don't know. There will be whales today and birds and trains and more this hour as we discuss the week gone by. With my guests, Seattle Times senior investigative reporter Patrick Malone. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Publicola co-founder and publisher Erica Barnett. Hi, Erica. Hello. GeekWire contributing editor. Hello, Mike Lewis. Hey, Bill. And please uh, stream the show if you like on YouTube and Facebook. You can watch the action. Let's get into the news of the week. Our first segment is going to be about nature and names, beginning with the Salish Sea Southern Resident Orca, who was kidnapped more than 50 years ago off Whidbey Island, taken to the Miami Sea Aquarium, and called Lolita. Lolita is a showgirl's name. That is not who she is anymore. That is the voice of Tomas Ellie Kinley, president of the local conservancy group Sacred Sea. Uh, she calls the uh, orca, we, we tend to call it Tokatai. She calls it uh, Skalichuktana. This orca is coming home. Seaquarium announced this week they're releasing the whale back to the Salish Sea. Although, Mike, that doesn't necessarily mean she will thrive here. No, I mean, there's a, there's a big open question about what's going to happen here once the whale is returned. And even just the transport of the whale is, is a little bit dangerous and a little bit fraught, uh, at least according to the folks who raised all the money to do, to do this. I think that there's a tremendous number of questions. And if there is a situation that has not been studied well, I mean, we've studied actually a fair bit on reintroduction of species and wolves in the West and things like this is a very, very different thing. This is an animal raised for 50 years in captivity, trying to reintegrate it with a pod. Even a pod that, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think there's a bunch of scientists who are very curious about what is going to happen and is the pod going to recognize this as a former member? Who knows? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also, uh, you know, reading this story, wondering to what extent this is a publicity stunt um, for, the, uh, for the aquarium that is getting um, some measure of credit for releasing the Sorka after all these years, um, you know, arguably exploiting it um, as a performer. And um, and yeah, I mean, I think that that could certainly backfire on them if uh, if it is indeed not safe for this orchid to return, you know, all the way across. I mean, there's going to be some sort of preliminary steps. Apparently, they're going to keep her in a in a pen out in open water and then eventually, you know, relocate her. But yeah, I mean, I, I that was the exact question I had when I read the story is how is this going to work? Yeah, I wondered if they were trying to avoid the bad publicity of this uh, orca dying in the Miami pool. I'd rather have her die in the Salish. You know, talk about a publicity move. I don't know. Well, I, I think it is, you know, pretty endearing, the notion that this whale might be reunited with its mother after 50-plus years. But by the same token, it, I am over 50, and I don't want to relocate, and I know that would be hard, and I would have to learn a new way of life. And uh, I just wonder how much of this is sort of uh, conscience washing for humans who've made this decision to have her in captivity for so long and whether it's really in the best interest of the whale at all. Yeah, we I guess we don't know for sure whether this is, I think, her mother, the, the whale known as Ocean Sun, but that's believed to be um, her uh, L-pod mom. And I think, yeah, we're, we're going to be watching for what a What a story. Remember the... the uh, Orca carrying around the calf, the dead calf. On, you know that would be the reunion between these two would be would, would go inverse. viral. Yeah, the inverse. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it also kind of took us back to a story I'd forgotten about, which was the Free Willy Star and how that that reintroduction went here in the Pacific Northwest a few years back, and it didn't go well. You know, the whale was fat and out of shape yep. from being a being a diva and then gets back into its natural habitat and kind of gets jacked, you know, really in shape and never really has contact with another whale. It just kind of lives out its life in a, in a little zone of the ocean that moves around and it dies within a couple of years. So yeah. Keiko. 
All right. Anything else to say about this? I, bid? I had personally just never heard a whale referred to as jacked, and I kind of jacked, <laughs> jacked whale. And, I, and I'm going to be carrying that one around with me. For yes, a while. yes. Good point. All right. Well, um, the uh, Tokatai will be headed back. We think maybe by the end of the year. It's hard to say. I mean, there's just a ton of logistics involved. There's. It's got to technically be approved by a bunch of federal agencies, and there's much money to be raised. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Opposing Tokatai's return is the National Association of Wild Salmon, but uh, I guess they got out-argued. <laughs> out Let's continue our wildlife theme here. This week, the Birding Society Seattle Audubon changed its name to disassociate itself from John James Audubon, who was a buyer, seller, and owner of slaves, abolition opponent, white supremacist. So the local group's name is now Birds Connect Seattle. Erica, the National Audubon Society has decided to keep that name. Why are why do you think names these names like this are so vital to some people? Yeah, I mean, I think the names are important. I think there is, uh, you know, for Audubon um, Society, there's probably a lot of resistance. I, I don't know exactly who the leadership of the National Audubon Society is, but if I'm going to go out on a limb, I would say it's older uh, white uh, boomer. Um, you know, uh, type folks who are perhaps um, a, a bit too in love with tradition and uh, too resistant to change. But, you know, I think a lot of times this this sort of thing starts locally and, you know, in a progressive place like Seattle, for example, and mm -hmm. spreads uh, virally. So, I, you know, I can't imagine this is the last time this, this name is going to be revisited. And, you know, frankly, I, I'm not particularly young, but, um, you know, if you ask me who uh, John James Audubon is, and I hope I'm getting his name right. Um, mm -hmm. You just said it. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, I would say, I, I, you know, the, the bird pictures and some beautiful paintings, and that's about all I know. And so if you're talking about trying to attract people who are, you know, maybe millennials and Gen Z, um, I, they're not going to really have that same attachment to this person's name as to, you know, the, the, as to birds yeah. and putting the word bird in that. Now, I, I'm not in love with the name. I find it a little confusing on paper, but, What's you know. confusing about it? Birds Connect Seattle. Birds Connect. It's a, it's a terrible name. <laughs> yeah. Birds Connect just makes me think of it's some sort of like uh, app or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible name. It, well, that's that's terrible? the thing that it's a terrible name. Well, we have to we have to uh, stipulate that no one has ever liked a name change at first. Any kind of it always sounds. Weird. I don't know. I think it's when FedEx changed from Federal Express, it made sense because that's what everyone called it. Okay. So I, I mean, well, I was well, actually true. I was I was fine with that. What I does everyone call the Seattle Audubon? Who knows? I mean, Seattle Audubon Society, I suppose, but. <clears throat> but Birds Connect Seattle, like I, we were talking about, the, it sounds like a transit agency, you know, made this name over a lunch <laughs> meeting, right? It's just a hurried lunch meeting, not even one where everything was thoughtfully considered. It's a terrible name. But I understand Birds why they're doing connect, it. Birds they connect habitats, they connect <sighs> the people who love them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to convince you. No, you're one. not. No, we're not. I, I don't think you're going to convince anyone. But they needed to do something. And they needed to make a name change. And I actually don't mind the fact. And people do get very tradition-bound. I knew about the Audubon Society, and I had friends who were birders and who were members of the Audubon Society. And I oh, never, at no point did I know much of the history of the guy, except that the other minor scandal in all this, of course, is that he killed all these birds to paint them, right? right. And, and that's that actually, there was a lot of people even then who were not terribly happy about, because he killed a whole lot of birds to paint a whole lot of birds. And so that is not the, the great crime here. The great crime is uh, obviously the history with, with slavery. I understand why they're changing. I actually agree with the fact that they're changing. It doesn't bother me at all. And I think Erica's right that you can change the name and make it a little bit more appealing to people who don't really know what the history is. But I'm glad about the organization. I mean, it seemed to me like there's an opportunity here to use this as a teaching moment on their website. What they should do is show the name change and then have a link and saying, here's why we changed the name. Mm -hmm. And that way people actually know that there was a rationale behind this, a legitimate rationale behind this, because this is, could be, as we like to say, a teaching moment, correct? Mm -hmm. Well, we've even seen, I think, a contemporary example that went sort of viral on social media a year or so ago of a black birder who was confronted by someone, what are you doing here? This is in New York Central Park. And uh, it's it's been a saga that we've followed. In, in the Bramble, right, where, where there's a lot of New York birders hang out. Yep. Correct. And, and uh, so, you know, that spotlighted something I didn't know about, uh, as, as a white male living in Seattle, which is that this has been a community that has historically been insular and exclusionary. 
And so I just have to applaud this name change because it really spotlights the the practical benefits of welcoming an inclusive language, uh, not just to include, you know, kicking Audubon to the curb, but even society. This is something we were talking about, Bill. Yes, um, yes. That the word society could even, you know, to uh, certain economic classes seem like, wait, that might be out of my reach, like a country club. Even though it just means it, it doesn't, it, it's not built in, but it's like it's become it, it, the the high society is almost implied. Yes, it's or pseudo snob signaling. Yeah, club, Washington Athletic Club. Clubby, yeah. yeah. Cotillion. They could have done cotillion. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's inclusive. Right. It seems exclusive. And I think if the goal here is to say, hey, all are welcome, then, uh, you know, Birds Connect Seattle accomplishes that better than Audubon or society. How about this? Mike, because I'm with you that connect Birds Connect Seattle. It's a little on the nose. You're still gonna make you make gonna make another run at this, aren't you? I'm gonna, no, actually <laughs> a colleague of mine solved the problem. Dyer Oxley, who, who writes our Today So I know Dyer Far quite blog. Well. Okay, yeah. he suggested Seattle Bird Nerds. That that works way better. for it's me. It's got a yeah. jump to it. It's got a lilt. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I'm tired of the fact that I'm I'm over the fact that nerds have sort of become the bullies in our society. Oh, so I think that uh, there's there's. It's it's certainly been overused. I agree with you there, but still, still a leap better than okay. Birds Connect Seattle. Agreed. All right, a hop better. Uh, the DC one just calls itself Nature Forward because they say we're about more That's than we're about more than birds. That's true. But anyway, there's not much nature in DC, having lived there. Not enough. That's why we're here. Uh, okay, so finally, the National Audubon Society said their name is Audubon is well known, which helps it focus resources on the loss of bird habitat. And I don't know if that means it's a good fundraiser or if it helps in lobbying for bird habitat that people know the Audubon name. But it's we all agree this is a matter of time. All the stationery they'd have to get rid of. Sure, right. sure. Well, people also know the Hitler name, and that doesn't make it appealing. I think it could be actually, you know— the type of thing that prevents certain donors from opening their wallets and certainly prevents people from taking part in their their exercises. Right. It's a matter of time. Sooner rather than later, uh, society. Okay, speaking of name changes, most Washington school districts have dropped their Native American mascots. But this week, students at a school on the Spokane Indian Reservation decided to continue being the Welpinit Redskins. And Mike, what was their reasoning? Uh, the reasoning – well, they voted for it, yeah. and, they, and they had actually traditionally had been using the name uh, amongst themselves, and they decided. And this is that rare opportunity where someone, an affected group, actually gets a chance to decide. Yeah, right? this school is like 90 percent Native This American. is not like the Washington now generals? What is the name of the Washington? Commanders. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Generals old to you. shows how old I am. Mm. Uh, the Washington commanders, this is not situations like that or the Cleveland Indians. Um, which is now the Cleveland Guardians, Guardians which are you. 0 and 1. So 0 far and 1, this exactly season. this yeah. season. Um, this is a chance for a group affected by it to decide we're going to take ownership and decide for ourselves. And I actually don't have any problem with that whatsoever. To me, it was, it, it didn't seem like that shocking of a decision. As no. long as the affected group is making the decision, I'm cool with it. A historian of the Spokane tribe named Warren Seiler. Sounded pretty even-handed. He said that Spokane chiefs in the 1800s would sometimes refer to tribal members as red fellows or red men. He said red was just a color of us. You're the white people and we're the red people. On the other hand, he also said the word has taken on a new and more offensive meaning. He basically seemed okay with whatever the students decided, which is what they did. Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's whether you define yourself um, or somebody else is defining you. If a, if a group decides um, that they are okay with, you know, n- not just okay with, but, you know, re- interested in reclaiming um, something that is considered to be a slur, um, you know, that, that absolutely makes sense to me. Um, you know, maybe they'll... I mean, it, Maybe they'll revisit it at some point in the future. But yeah. if you've got students voting for this and saying this is what this is who we are and who we want to be and you don't get to define us, then I think that's great. And in an unusual move, the legislature actually thought ahead to leave a carve out for this so that schools that are in uh, you know Native American areas right. of the state or have a high Native American population can make this choice for themselves where others cannot. And that's that's valid because, you know, uh, this frames the context a little differently than if it were uh, sort of being presented from a predominantly white school that uses these mascots. But uh, I do think that there are certain factors that don't change for many people of Native American ancestry that will still find this potentially offensive. Oh, and, ha- and have said so. Yeah. It's yeah. not a monolith, right? 
Right, exactly. And uh, but but the difference here being, as Erica so artfully said, is uh, who gets to control that, how you're referred to very much in the same vein as uh, who gets to define whether someone identifies as one gender or another. It's it comes from the person who identifies that way, not from the outside. Finally, because we're all journalists here, I decided to call I said the word I decided to call the school mascot by the name the students have chosen. If you were to report on the team for some reason and it was you choosing the word, would you use that name or withhold the name the way a lot of people have talked about the Washington football team until they changed their name? Um, I'd report the name. Okay. No, zero question. I mean, if that's what they have decided yeah. uh, that they're going to do. Uh, I mean, again, I think there's a pretty clear distinction between what the Washington football team did. Uh, and then ultimately was only forced, at, oddly enough, we mentioned this this company earlier, only really moved to change the name when FedEx decided to withhold paying for those naming rights for the stadium. And then suddenly they, they found religion on this issue. Yeah. So I would say that I would absolutely report it, given that this was a decision by the student body. Uh, ditto. I mean, yeah. uh, absolutely. Same. Nah, I don't think I would. I think that it's fine when it's on the scoreboard in your home gym. I think that if, uh, you know, uh, a news outlet decided as an editorial decision that the leaders of that organization were going to use the name, I think that it would at least call for a short explanation that this is the name that this school chose just so that it isn't perceived as a slight from an organization. Because, look, we are institutions still and uh, we are not within that protected circle that has the right to make this declaration. So I think I would... uh, straight from the group on this one. But I will say the Seattle Times did use the name uh, in mm-hmm. its reprint of a story from Spokane. Right. They're right. asking what I would do, not what the Seattle <laughs> Times. Right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. Uh, that is Patrick Malone, who works for the Seattle Times. We have Erica Barnett here from Publicola, Mike Lewis from GeekWire. Finally, uh, before we take a break on the topic of words, which thank you for being as interested in words as I am. We've sort of been talking about words for the last you know, uh, 20 minutes or so. Um, an orca's name, uh, Skalichuktana, uh, the Spokane High School mascot, Tokate. I am doing a series about words, about the words we choose, and and dropping these episodes into this podcast feed, into the Week in Review podcast feed. So we are going to take a look this coming Monday at words and phrases you may or may not have gotten used to. Uh, let's let's powwow about that. Low man on the totem pole. Hollywood tropes like the spooky Indian burial ground. You're going to meet a comedian who's also an enrolled Cowlitz tribal member who's done a series for Comedy Central about the words that uh, are sometimes used to describe Native American people and culture. And he's a thoughtful, funny guy. So uh, you'll enjoy that conversation as part of Week in Review. So hang with us for that and stick with us right here as we take a break and then continue with more of the week's news here on Week in Review. Support comes from Gather Pottery, hosting ceramicist Sarah Anderson, teaching a weekend graffito workshop for all levels, May 18th and 19th at Gather Pottery in Interbay. Learn more at gatherpottery.com. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks! You're listening to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, here with Publicola's Erica Barnett, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and the Seattle Times' Patrick Malone. After 11 years of close federal oversight of Seattle's police department, city officials and the U.S. Justice Department this week asked for it to end. They filed a joint motion in federal court to end the 2012 consent decree. Erica, that order came about because Seattle was found to use unconstitutional and excessive force during arrests, showed signs of biased policing. Um, Federal oversight would not totally disappear under this agreement. So how much has Seattle Police Department changed? 
Well, I mean, according to the memo and uh, the request for uh, this agreement to be lifted, um, and according to the city of Seattle, in fact, it has changed dramatically. Um, The city says that, uh, you know, cited remarkable transformation, said that it was like night and day. Um, I think that the public may not um, necessarily believe that. Um, One of the issues that is still outstanding is the issue of crowd control at protests. Um, SPD says that they're they're doing fine except for one I believe the city attorney uh, referred to it as you know one uh, lone exception um, which was the 2020 protests when police you know obviously behaved with uh, you know used a lot of force against a lot of people tear gassed a whole neighborhood for you know days on end and uh, so that's still outstanding Um, the city though believes it can wrap that up by the end of this year or actually by the summer and sort of come up with a better plan for crowd control. Um, the other thing that's outstanding is the system about uh, accountability, sort of how um, officers are held accountable for misconduct, how discipline happens, and you know whether cases are getting thrown out through arbitration, um, so uh, or whether disciplinary decisions rather are being thrown out by arbitrators. So, uh, so those are still outstanding, but the city thinks that they'll be able to wrap all that up by the end of the year. Do you know, Erica, if the issue about crowd control is an issue of policy, or did Seattle not follow its own policies? They, it's an issue of policy. They want um, SPD to adopt, um, you know, some sort of better, more effective crowd control policy. And uh, interestingly, in the um, in the memos, the city says, you know, the reason they say that this was a lone exception is that they there have been protests subsequently, and they say, you know, the police did fine. Um, I would you know, sort of counter to that, that those protests were about things like the war in Ukraine and the Women's March. They were not protests for racial justice specifically aimed at police. Mm. And so we haven't really had a test yet to see if they would behave differently now in the similar situation. Yeah, good point. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, one, I don't know that we have a whole lot of provables on how much things have improved. It's a very difficult organization to penetrate if you're a reporter. There's not a whole lot of access to individual officers and to hear what they think about this. You get one person, the union boss, yes. uh, who speaks for every, apparently a monolithic uh, voice for a, an, an organization that has a lot of nuanced opinions if you ever get to know police officers personally. It is not a universe. There are not very few universally held beliefs. But the one thing I wonder about, just as, sort of as a slight aside to all of this, is given the Seattle Police Department and it's, what, one third down on officers now, something like that? Why are we not still talking about – because part of the problem is the training. Like we're getting – we're going to be getting a whole bunch of academy recruits over the course of the next few years. And it seems to me like that has to be a component. When you're looking for police reform, you have to reform at the very beginning because once you get into an organization and start the indoctrination process in any organization, you start becoming a part of that and it becomes normalized, right? But we're not talking about what happens prior to that a lot. Now, I know that that's not part of the consent decree. But nonetheless, it seems to be it should be part of a holistic conversation about how you reform police in a city like Seattle. Are there police academies that are known for being progressive versus conservative, the way that there are school, the way that Liberty University turns out different students from <laughs> Reed College? You know, I, I mean, don't I don't have any idea. I think they probably all follow pretty what they would consider tried and true methods of, I mean, I think that they absolutely discovered new things and they use, you know, train one year. They remember when they started training with the verb, what they referred to as verbal judo, a certain way of talking to get people to do what you want them to do. So you didn't have to escalate. I know that they've done stuff, but I think that the training, my guess, and this is just a guess, my guess is that the training is relatively universal. Um, I mean, I think that the city of Seattle would point to some of the stuff it's doing, you know, that is not in control of the the state Academy, like before the badge, which is sort of a sensitivity right. training program. I think there are some, I mean, the, the I've written a little bit about one of the trainers uh, who's fairly controversial for before the badge. I mean, I think the people that you choose to say represent like the African-American community, and I'm, I'm using quotes because, you know, no community is a monolith, but it, when you choose a couple people who uh, believe, you know, essentially what you believe as the mayor and as the police chief, to do the training about what the community uh, wants and needs, then you are representing a small slice of that community. And that's true of any community. But I think in particular, um, you know, the fact that the trainers who are doing that work for Before the Badge are sort of hand-selected. They're, you know, Bruce Harrell supporters. They're people who are very much in favor of, 
you know, the status quo to a large extent uh, for police, that's going to lead to a result that's pretty similar to what we already have. So the police say that they're doing stuff. They're also doing all kinds of, and they cite this in the consent decree request, you know, they're doing tons of like of trainings with names like um, outward mindset and, you know, sort of management ease. What is an outward mindset? It's basically the idea is that you uh, need to think of people as people rather than objects and not objectify people that you deal with in the community. Um, that is the concept behind this training. I, I believe it's fairly expensive training. Um, it's associated with the Mormon church, interest, interestingly enough. Mm. Um but that's just kind of the latest in a series of like of these sort of conceptual uh, trainings to teach people to think differently that I don't think ultimately have that much of an impact. Well, and, you know, not to get too far off the topic, but I have been doing some work uh, over the last number of months on the Criminal Justice Training Commission. And one of the things that is very apparent, the more you get to see how they operate in distinct situations where there's perhaps a troublesome uh, recruit is that you see that they basically have culturally handed the keys over to the individual departments. And uh, it's not so much – it's very rare to see the Justice Commission, except in the most extreme circumstances, remove a recruit. More often they'll go to these departments and the department will say, we can work with this guy. And so we're not really seeing a culture imposed by the Criminal Justice Commission. We're seeing them sort of uh, acquiesce on that and say, hey, departments, culturally, you're going to define what you can tolerate in terms of recruits. And I think that some of that does feed into what we've seen with progress on this consent decree, because things that happen at the academy are often, let's implement a policy or we must measure certain data. That's what they're also uh, in the consent decree requiring of the city of Seattle. And now that is low-hanging fruit. Anybody can stand up a policy. Anybody can say we're going to start measuring something. But then when we look at what those measurements have found, there has not been improvement in the disparity of treatment of people of color. There has not been an improvement in the way that uh, the department has dealt with crowds and how they disperse them. And these are things that were even admitted uh, by the city. They're saying, hey, look, uh, we know that we still need work in certain areas. And I question how much that is honesty and how much that is just sort of, you know, cover your own butt type stuff when you're asking a favor, like let us out, let us take off the training wheels. I got a quick question for you because I think you probably follow this more more closely than most. What about this idea of, of national licensing of officers? I've been reading a lot about that, that there's this idea that there should be like they should actually have to have a license in other words, to be able to be a law enforcement uh, official in the United States, some sort of universal baseline rather than because it's so individual to departments about who you train, how they are trained. I mean, it changes city to city, sometimes a little bit precinct to precinct, but mostly city to city in wide rise. I mean, is there any discussion about that, about trying to make some sort of universal standard for what you should have to be able to what tests you should be able to have to pass to become a law enforcement officer in the United States? That raises a really great question, but one that I'm sure would be very thorny. And while I have not yeah, read any very, literature on this yeah. or anything, I mean, I just look at it in terms of other massive sort of policy umbrellas that have been taken on at the federal level. And, you know, would we be setting ourselves up for just wild undulations or wild pendulum swings when, for instance, Congress flips or the presidency flips? And I think that uh, there is a there is room for local control in things like this. And I do think that it's one of the things that probably has benefited Seattle in the past, whether with the current administration it does. But uh, there would be straight states' rights concerns, I think, in that mm-hmm. area. And there would also be the uh, what we see with health care policy or anything else when the the party in control changes, then you swing 180 degrees and we're going to have whiplash one administration to the next. Real quick, I'm coming back to SPD specifically, uh, you know, I think one big outstanding factor that uh, that the consent decree does um, or the agreement proposal does mention quite a bit, and actually there's an affidavit about it too from the city's labor negotiator, is what's going to happen with this upcoming police contract. Um, they are negotiating now with uh, the, the police union, which is run by, you know, a very by a, a person who, you know, talks to some media, certainly doesn't talk to me, um, you know, who's run by a very irascible uh, right wing uh, person, Mike Solon. And, um, you know, and, and, and so 
the last time there were significant reforms was in 2017 when they adopted a police accountability bill that really would have made some significant changes and required and required more accountability from the, from SPD. The next year, most of that bill was overturned because of the contract. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it's mentioned so many times in this uh, agreement is interesting because it suggests, um, you know, that they're going to actually try to get some reforms along the lines of what they got from the Police Management Association last year. So, you know, we'll see if that actually plays out. But, you know, it's definitely sending a signal that this is something that they want to continue working on. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll see what the judge, what Judge Robart, right? That's the next, uh, the next step. This federal judge uh, answers this filing. Um, While we're talking about the Uh, Justice system, Patrick, the Seattle Times reports that Washington state's jail mortality rate's been climbing for 20 years, and it recently ranked as one of America's highest. Why are so many Washington inmates dying? Well, I think for one thing, uh, Washington doesn't have what many other states do, which is an oversight agency that specifically watches jail deaths and things of that nature. And even some other states have that. Many other states have that. About half the states have that, and we're a little over half, and we are not one of them. Um, And that isn't to say that that would fix everything either. Mm -hmm. You know, the jail deaths happen in those states as well. But one of the other problems is uh, state law passed in 2021 requiring these counties and cities, these jurisdictions, municipalities to, to report jail deaths has only been complied with by four counties, you know, uh, and I think that that's another part of it is uh, when you pass a law that is aimed at defining a problem or understanding its scope to quantify how bad are we, uh, and it's not complied with by law enforcement, then it's not giving us the window into this. We don't know the scope of the problem well enough because, it, frankly, law enforcement isn't following the law, and it's the same sort of uh, defiance that we've seen in red flag gun laws and that we've seen in uh, limits on physical contact with people in crisis. If if a law enforcement agency doesn't want to follow the law, uh, there are no consequences. No and enforcement in that law? There is not, not against the agencies. Uh-huh. And so uh, until there is, they can just continue to kind of uh, use the bird to connect uh, mm. Washington jurisdictions and say, we're just not going to do what the state has told us to do. So it boils down to do they care or do they not? I think ultimately, and if the priority for a particular agency and their leadership is, you know, obstinance and that everything, you know, conform to their worldview and that they can just set aside laws that aren't, it is just frankly saying that they don't care enough about whether people live in their jails or die. Well, I think we can't also discount the fact that our jails are, you know, becoming crowded again, or the downtown jail in Seattle in particular is becoming extremely crowded for the amount of of people, the guards that they have working there. Um, they're extremely understaffed, and the jail guards union and the uh, public defense union have been raising the alarm about this for years now. And the solution that the jail has essentially come up with, the Department of Adult and Juvenile Detention has come up with, is to move people out of the jail to other jails that are less uh, overcrowded or understaffed. And so they're, you know, potentially shifting as many as 150 people to a jail uh, in uh, Kent. I'm sorry, in Des Moines. Um, They've already moved 50 people. They're shifting, as I reported last week, uh, 50 people to the King County Regional Justice Center in Kent. And these are not solutions. I mean, you're really literally just moving people around. And meanwhile, you know, the city is putting more people in jail. People on the prolific offenders list that Ann Davison, city attorney, came up with are now um, spending, you know, an average of four months a year in jail. Um, so we're just talking, and that's a, that's a relatively small number of people, but it's we're moving in the direction of more incarceration and the jail itself is becoming, you know, a, a ever more poorly staffed place with, you know, stressed out guards and under, you know, it, inmates who can't get to mental health appointments, can't to get to physical health appointments. Well, can, I need to ask about that. Are we talking about suicides, homicides, um, you know, a, a, aged um, inmate, poor health, poor medical care? Paul, like, is there some when we talk about deaths in jails? What's the what? What should we be? What's the most important part we should be paying well, attention? In to? Seattle, uh, suicide has been one of the foremost problems. Okay, and part of that, you know, it was identified in a study last year that 
uh, these beds essentially are sort of suicide kits. They're very easily used to commit suicide. And, and uh, I think this is one of the greatest examples of how little you know, the powers that be care about solving this problem. They give it a lot of lip service, but they gave a long runway for this that extends out past a year and frankly closer to two to even fix the bed problem that is so obvious. And, you know, Erica raised a great point about uh, the moving around the shell game of of prisoners uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're safe. And I think that's where the power resides in this story by my colleague, Sydney Brownstone. She says, look, we know we have this problem in Seattle. But guess what? It's everywhere else, too. She gave the example in Garfield County of a man who had committed suicide and was served two meals before the guards checked on him closely enough to realize that he had been dead all this time. And Mm -hmm. so uh, suicide is a big part of this. And that is something that is affected by understaffing, jail equipment and uh, a whole lot of other factors and warehousing people with mental illness. Okay. Well, and one of the factors, because I covered this a bit in California in the prison system there and the jail system there a few years ago, when you start moving people around, you move them. And many of these people come from, from backgrounds where they, don't have, where they have loose connections or they don't have super solid connections, not a lot of money with their own family members. And when you put them in a place where they can't even get a visit, because this is what happens when you start moving people. They can't get a visit from somebody who is their link to sort of like maybe some level of reform or correct course correction and back out. When you when you pull that link away, that's when you say, and we saw it in California, you see a spike in suicides, in behaviors, in all kinds of issues that make mean them that they're going to stay longer in there and frequently have worse outcomes, you know, at the at their time in incarceration. Yeah, good point. Okay, we're we're going to take a break. You can read that story in the Seattle Times, that Sydney Brownstone's story. You're listening to Week in Review, and we have more events of the week to discuss for you after a short break. So don't go away. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke, with GeekWire's Mike Lewis, Publicola's Erica Barnett, and Seattle Times' Patrick Malone. Coming to a bus or a light rail train near you, fentanyl detectors. Patrick, what are public health officials trying to learn? Well, uh, they're trying to learn whether the current county guidance is correct, which which says it's pretty safe. You're not going to get secondhand high or get uh, in your bloodstream anything that is a secondhand smoke of a drug. And uh, that has been contradicted by what some of the transit workers have said they experienced. There have been an awful lot of, you know, people having to leave mid-shift or saying, I'm sick, or feeling uncomfortable after being exposed to this kind of thing. And so now there are going to be these filters placed into into some transit vehicles that are going to give us an opportunity to really look into that. Uh, and so... You know, it will be interesting to see what these health effects are because we've seen viral videos of police officers who, you know, brush up against a pill and suddenly are convulsing on the ground and things like this. So I'm really curious. I really want there to be, personally, some uh, common sense, some rationale and some real research around this that, that we can point to and say, is it good? Is it bad? Is it neutral? You know, what is happening to people who are in these? I, you know, one concern I have about it is that fear of secondhand exposure it would limit what is already, I think, too few people using public transit in Seattle based on the folks I talk with. Yeah, I mean, I think the police writhing on the ground, I mean, that is that is not real. Like, that is that is fake. I mean, that it is it may be a purely they may really be reacting that way for psychological reasons. And, you know, this is not defending fentanyl being everywhere and particularly not on the buses. Um, It's very, you know, uh, unpleasant to ride the bus when somebody's smoking fentanyl right next to you. But there is a ton of science on this. And particularly with I mean, one of the things that they're testing is fentanyl residue on objects. Um, I mean, unless you are licking it or snorting it, um, touching um, a drop of fentanyl, you know, a speck of fentanyl, or even like a ground up fentanyl pill on your palm is not going to make you pass out or be high. And there's been so much research on this. Um, the, uh, the the smoke, I mean, they've done quite a bit of research on the, uh, the, the actual impacts on people who are inhale fentanyl smoke that has gone through somebody's lungs. Um, so the vapor that comes out and, you know, how much fentanyl do you absorb? And it is so negligible that it does it barely shows up on tests. And there's a lot of this information. Um, what about what's in the air without going through somebody's lungs? Is that what they're trying to figure out in this new filter? Well, 
it's so I, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to try to get into the science of it because I'm not a scientist. But my understanding is that it's fat soluble. So when um, when fentanyl goes into the air, it's not that you are breathing it in and it's like immediately going into your bloodstream. It's that it, the way that it processes is such that you have to smoke it and actually inhale it. Um, and it's really more inhalation than than smoking. Um, to uh, to feel the effects and and there really there has been a lot of research on this. There's a lot of it that's linked on the King County Public Health website, and it's not just you know King County's opinion. This is an issue that's happening all across the country, and so there's there's a tremendous amount of research nationally on this. Um, so you know I, I I kind of feel like King County Metro is acting at cross purposes to um, to King County Public Health at this point, and the real issue is. How do we figure out how to deal with the people who are sitting on the train and smoking anything, cigarettes, various kinds of drugs? Um, you know, this is not this is not acceptable behavior, and there has to be a way to deal with the behavior, and rather than sort of this this panic about um, about effects that are you know I think psychological. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm inclined to, in part, agree with you. Um, I don't know about the whole, you know, uh, fat-soluble thing, given that THC is fat-soluble. And, and and you can certainly, anyone who's ever been to a dead show or a fish show would, would probably argue the fact that being around it does have an effect on you. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's anywhere near the density of a dead show or a fish show. But I, but I am saying that that I'm assuming that if you can smoke it and you can exhale it and someone's sitting next to you, there's, it's potential. I, I mean, this, the health department seems to think that there is that the research would show that it's unlikely. So I'm actually willing to, to go with that. The bigger problem, of course, is the fact that people are smoking this on the buses and on the light rail. I mean, there's zero question about that. That's the that is a reason if you want to make transit more appealing to people, which obviously the city and county desperately want to do and solve some other problems in the city as a result of that. You have to make them the people feel safe in that environment, and and we know how much transit ridership stopped, primarily because of COVID problems. But we also know that there's a whole bunch of people who never went back, and those people who didn't go back in part are doing it because of the way. I, mean, I, I do ride the bus. And anecdote alert: I'm on I, I'm on the bus and train twice a day during. Now this is rush hour, and I. I'm unaware of fentanyl smoking. Again, that's just an anecdote. I'm sure it happens. But if you're scared of going on transit, it's yeah. just one person reporting that it's not maybe not absolutely, a and thing. it's and it's actually more on some lines than others. The ones I mean, it tends to be on on the lesser used lines frequently because yeah. you don't have as many people around. You don't have people chewing you away, things right, like that. Right. Well, but but I do think that that is actually like the bigger problem here is absolutely the, the the issue of this happening on the buses, enough that we're talking about it, enough that we actually feel with the need to study it <laughs> well, is, is, is a, the inherent problem. I think the issue is sort of balancing a panic about, you know, something that isn't real or is it probably isn't real, which is, you know, that people are passing out and falling on the ground and writhing around because somebody is smoking fentanyl a few seats away. And a problem that is real, which is, you know, that like we have to deal with antisocial behavior in public spaces. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who's also like a hardcore transit rider like I am. And, um, you know, and I was like, you know, to be honest, like me personally, I will just move. I will roll my eyes and I will move. And um, and, you know, but I think we and, and this person said the same thing. But the thing is, you shouldn't have to be like hardened to ride the bus. And they're never going to get people back. Like, I am I am pretty hardened. You know, I will put up with a lot. But you shouldn't have to put up with that because you're never going to get people back that that don't feel safe. And, and, and feeling safe is, you know, it can go too far. You know, we can, yes. like, people sometimes don't feel safe in situations where they are very safe. But... If you if somebody's smoking fentanyl on the bus, like come on, I mean that's that we have to figure out a way to deal with the behavior without panicking about the substance. We have to move on. I did see Patrick in this time story that there might be a QR code that writers can scan to report drug use. Right, and uh, you know which they'll be swiping to report people sleeping and anything else. You know? Also told you what it smells like, which was interesting to me because I like both of you. I'm primarily traveled by transit. And I have never smelled motor oil and peanut butter 
Yes. Fumes. Uh, Which I'm told fentanyl smells like. That's what I'm told. That was evocative. It's kind of it what is. I kind of what I smell like, actually. Hmm, <laughs> you haven't given the amount of peanut butter, and I'm always <laughs> see, working on some See, engine, I smell so, like yeah. peanut butter, but not motor oil, because yeah. I take transit. That's fair enough. Uh, we're, we're closing to the end of the show. Seven minutes left. Um, speaking of light rail, Erica, I want to mention you reported in Publicola this week. City of Seattle paid a consultant $280,000 to lobby for the mayor's preferred light rail loot route. Lobbyists going to lobby, so what's the problem? Well, I mean, the the issue um, is, and, you know, I just reported on it. I didn't say it's a problem okay. per se. But the issue is, I mean, first of all, yeah, lobbyists going to lobby. Lobbyists not always going to lobby for the city for $20,000 or more a month. Um, there was an outrage a few years ago when Jenny Durkin hired somebody not as a lobbyist, but to be the city's designated representative to Sound Transit, which is a real job that is filled by a city employee now. Um, and um, I've been a bit surprised that this has not gotten um, similar attention because it is significantly more money. The lobbyist is Tim Cease, who's been around forever. He used to be deputy mayor, worked for Ron Sims, and is a longtime political lobbyist uh, known as the Shark. Um, and uh, and 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 so, are you? Does that imply that he's doing something unethical? Like um, I think he embraces. I think he embraces uh, the name because what it what it means is you know he will pull people by the lapels and you know LBJ style and maybe not literally anymore, but um, and you know and and sort of browbeat them into agreeing to whatever it is he's lobbying for. And mm. and I don't think he would dispute that. I mean, he's embraced this you know this name. Oh. So I, it's it's a lot of money. It's uh, for a lobbying contract for the city. It is a tremendous amount of money, and it's also just below the. Um, it's a sole source contract that's just below the threshold for any kind of sole source contract at the city. So I, I think it is a big deal. Well, I'd, I'd also add one quick thing that that uh, uh, he is a former deputy mayor for for Greg Nichols. Um, that this that he also was involved in Bruce Harrell's. A political campaign in in kind of a big way, and so I'm not saying that this is a big thank you card, but I'm not saying that it isn't. Mm-hmm. And the Compassion Seattle campaign, which he uh, which he worked on, and that became Bruce Harrell's uh, homelessness plan. Okay, and just an outstanding story, by the way, Erica, because it it is the type of thing that I would like to see more of us local journalists cover. That uh, is, what is the influence behind the city's objectives? It tells us so much more about why things are happening the way they are. And uh, I just think it was... But are you well saying done. that the light rail route is being skewed toward what this lobbyist want? I mean, is, is there anything improper happening? It's under the limit. It's... Well, I think, I think that lo- the lobbying, just to be clear, was specifically on behalf of a light rail route that um, was presented as the unanimous, you know, or monolithic um, preference of the Chinatown International District community. And it became extreme. And there was a lot of lobbying on behalf of this. Um, it's the it's the route that Bruce Harrell sponsored at Sound Transit and that was ultimately chosen. Um, and there's a lot of more interesting stories that I think will come out of that that you'll see on Publicola. Okay. But but I but I do think it was, you know, manufacturing consent. And there was quite a lot of opposition to that route from people in the CID, including the head of Awajamaya, including uh, the head of the um, Skipta, the PDA down there. So it's definitely not a unanimous consensus. And yet that's what that's what passed. And I think that there, there's a tendency among us as journalists to say, hey, this lobbying happened and it was legal, so it's not worth reporting. And I disagree with that. I think that it tells us why, uh, you know, who has the ear of important people, who is in their inner circle. And it's why they're lobbying disclosure laws. It's because that is legitimate influence, whether it's illegal or not. I completely agree. So you're saying it's worth bringing up on Week in Review, for Absolutely. example. Okay, good. Okay, we've got three minutes left now, and we always want to leave listeners with something to smile about. I'm guessing somebody is smiling at the Mariners um, now being the presumptive World Series champions, the undefeated Seattle Mariners. Yeah, I mean, they could, it's conceivable they could go 162-0. and 0. Yep. Well, according to Nate Silver's 538, they're only going to win 84 games, and that's three games over 500, but enough to win the West. Well, there you go. Well, so far so good because the Mariners won their season opener at home last night. The interesting part to me was that, you know, as of this season, the pitcher only gets 15 seconds or 20 seconds in some cases to start throwing the ball. 
And that might have won the game for Seattle, that Cleveland pitchers seem to struggle with this brand-new rule. It's, it's a new style of game. I wasn't there, but it sounds like the crowd is chanting down the seconds, trying to get in the pitcher's head. The pitcher does a violation because he can't throw it fast enough, and then he walks that batter, hits another one, gives up a home run. Well, right? If it, if it makes the game shorter, I might actually go to one. <laughs> <laughs> Erica is not on board. I promise not to talk, not to even weigh in but on a sports thing. A lot of sports fans agree with you, Erica. They made this change, and people. It was two hours and fourteen minutes last night. That's something a f- like that. That's relatively a relatively fast game. Yeah. And you're into that, right? I think it's. I think it's great. That's not actually what I was thinking of. It made me smile. Oh, oh, oh. But what I what did make me smile. Can I just say then before I leave that sure. I appreciated Patrick telling us before we went on the air. Why would you be a fan of a game and then want it to be as short, short as possible? You're cool with the long, uh, slow... I love it. And now, I'm a baseball traditionalist. I hate the designated hitter rule. Yeah. You know, I agree with you on that point. Uh, I, I just think that... I, I think one of the beautiful parts of it is there is no limit to how long a game could potentially go. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Speaking of how long I could potentially go, no, what did you yeah. want to talk about, Mike? So so what made me smile this week was I happened to be going through... And I, I, I'm a little bit of a local history nerd, and I'm going through History Link. And ran across the fact that the Rat City Roller Girls did their first bout this week, or this week, fifty in two thousand five, uh-huh. which well, was fast. which was kind of a it was a groundbreaking organization in the city for many ways. There was a documentary, I think, Blood on the Flat Track, that was done about, and it was the third roller derby in the country, of modern roller derby in the country. And the first was Austin, Texas, then Los Angeles, and then Seattle. And it was like woman owned, woman run, woman staffed. Like it was, and it was immensely popular, especially when they were, they started off, I think, at the Rink and White Center and then moved to Sandpoint, right? Mm-hmm. And they were in one of the old hangars out there, which yeah. was raucous. It was actually loads of fun to go to the games out there. I thought it lost a little bit of something when it went to Key Arena. It was just so cavernous and didn't contain it and intensify it the way it was over the, but I mean, that was an impressive organization for a long period of time in town, still around. Okay. 15 years of Rat City Rollers. Anything else before we go? Guys, it's pea patch season again. Um, you can sign up for pea patch anytime. Um, I guarantee that you will enjoy it, even if you are not an amazing gardener, and there will always be drama. So if you like a little petty drama in your life, sign up for a pea patch. It's the, the biggest uh, low stakes drama, and it's incredibly <laughs> affordable. So I really recommend the program. I love it. We've got only seconds, so let me just ask you. Do you all know the video game Dance Dance Revolution? Because Seattle, Seattle Met Magazine profiled a Seattle event called Dance Church. You could call it a workout, but really it's just putting on music and dancing. They do it at Century Ballroom, Capitol Hill. They've expanded to other cities. Not only do I smile at that, just simple, fun idea, but Seattle Met's piece about Dance Church was called Dance Dance Revelation, and that little touch made me smile. So thanks, headline writer. That made me want to, you know, get the idea. Patrick Malone, Seattle Times Investigations, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Erica Barnett, Public Cola co-founder and publisher, thanks. Thank you. GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, thanks for being the show. Thank you. Kevin Kniestet, Tio Popescu, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, all you dancers. I'm Bill Radke. We'll see you again next week.